Welcome back to Now, the podcast celebrating a variously compiled world of pop. In each episode, a variety of fabulous guests and I explore favourite compilation albums, as well as considering how these collections shaped pop culture and now fondly stand as time captures for our own musical and life milestones. I hope that you will enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the show through your favourite podcast provider and join in with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Joining me for this episode is Katrin Lowe. Katrin is a podcaster, writer and promoter who has worked with an array of arts organisations across the UK, such as the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama, The Vaults, City of London Festivals and Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. She's helped to publicise a wide range of events, including productions of classic musicals and performances from artists such as the London Symphony Orchestra, Kit Downs and Martha Wainwright. She currently co-hosts the podcast Don't You Want Me, which focuses on the most fascinating screen relationships and how they are brought to life through dialogue, casting and soundtrack. Films covered include Grease, Fatal Attraction, The Graduate, Drive and West Side Story. And Catherine can be found spilling her thoughts on music, film and theatre on Twitter and Instagram at Kitty Costanza. Have I pronounced that right? Yeah. You have, absolutely. Oh, <laughs> Catherine, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on, Ian. It's absolutely fantastic to be here. It's one of my favourite podcasts. To to coin a very 1992 phrase, I am not worthy. <laughs> and a good film link as well. Tell us a bit more about the Don't You Want Me podcast. So we just thought it would be a, a really interesting idea to look at different relationships in films. Sometimes they're romantic ones, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're warm, sometimes they're acrimonious. And just think about how those connections are kind of brought to life, whether it be, you know, through really snappy dialogue. Sometimes, you know, with film like Drive, it's to do with the fact that there isn't that much dialogue between the two people that are at the centre of the film. Sometimes it can be through incredible music and that, you know, when it's something like West Side Story or Grease, you know, there are all kinds of things to unpick there. And um, yeah, we just had a really good time thinking about how, you know, things like casting can make for good chemistry and, and yeah, and, and also, you know, linking it back to this podcast, how music sometimes can provoke a really strong atmosphere, like um, in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, for instance, the fact that, you know, in that you have, um, we have all the time in the world being used in that movie. And it's so, you know, it conjures up such a strong feeling in the viewer. And if you take that song out of that movie, it's so different. Yeah. And um, the connection between the two people feels very different if you if you think of it without that. So, yeah, there's all, all kinds of things to unpick there. <laughs> it is one of my absolute favourite podcasts, just because... It's so wonderfully conversational. Oh, I'm so I'm so glad you enjoy it. I mean, I was I was thinking about it in relation to year that we did dealing with with this album because one of the movies that we did was Boomerang mm -hmm. and Boomerang has such a fantastic soundtrack. Obviously, it had a big number one for Boys to Men, um, End of the Road, and in that one you've got the relationship between Eddie Murphy and Robin Givens. And I think it's really interesting, and we'll come back to this later, but it kind of indicates a bit of a trend, I think, in this year about how 
women are being depicted in pop culture maybe and the character that Robin Givens plays in that movie I don't know if you've seen it but it's so independent she's absolutely unapologetic about her position she you know really enjoys going out with Eddie Murphy's character but she has absolutely no need for a committed long-term relationship and she just is very successful and so self-confident and um, I think that kind of indicates something a little bit about what's going on in 1992. For listeners who haven't heard it, Don't You Want Me? It's a wonderful podcast. I'm guessing a good few listeners to this podcast have already found it. Oh, I hope so. It'd be lovely to have some more if if anyone would would like to come and give it a go. As always, before we, we dig into your chosen album, what and who were the first influences on your musical choices? Well, my parents had a pretty cool collection of vinyl. Uh, There was a little shelf next to the record player in our sitting room and it did have some quite good stuff there. There were things like Hendrix and Bob Marley and Led Zeppelin and um, Gladys Knight and the Pips. But I think that the thing in that collection that had a big impression on me when I was very little would have been the Motown Christmas compilation that they had. The yeah, the Temptations arrangement of um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is just second yeah. to none. It's incredible. Once you've heard that one, you just can't have any other one. There are things like um, Stevie Wonder on there and the Jackson 5 and the Supremes. And I just love that. I mean, still to this day, if you play me anything from that compilation, I'll get very, get very misty-eyed. Um, but there were, yeah, my, I came from... Uh, an Irish family. So um, my parents had met at Trinity in Dublin mm. and um, they bought, um, you know, records by Planksty and the Chieftains. And my dad had been friends with, you know, one of the roadies for uh, Phil Linet and he, that led to him having a cup of tea with him one day. And we were always hearing about that. And that kind of made for quite a lot of sort of, you know, sort of singing of Irish folk songs and because I was growing up in Wales as well, there'd be a lot of singing when I went to school. That'd be quite a big mm-hmm. part of my primary school. So there were all these kind of things going on. There was quite a lot of classical music being played as well. Like, I think my mum had Wagner's Ring Cycle on a tape and sometimes she'd put me down for a nap and it would be in a kind of like calm bit of the Ring Cycle and then she'd go off and do some chores and forget that she'd put me down for a nap and I'd wake up in the middle of the Ride of the Valkyries and I'd be terrified so um, yeah there was all kinds of funny things going on like that. My grandmother had been a music teacher Mm. and um, she played the piano for various dramatic societies in the community and we'd go and watch her play and um, she really loved music and she and my mum both really liked musical theatre. So I think some of the first memories I have were of things like The Sound of Music and West Side Story. And I think my grandmother also gave me permission to really like Top of the Pops because I can remember going around there one evening with my sister and she was watching an episode with my granddad. And I remember it was one from, it must have been from 88 or 89 because it had the Reynolds girls on it. And I can remember mm. she said to me, she said, oh, I really love the Reynolds girls. <laughs> I really, and I thought, oh, that's quite interesting. That Maybe there was something about, um, yeah, their attitude to Fleetwood Mac and, and all of that. Maybe my grandmother that's appreciated yeah. that. Taping things off the radio became a big thing. Like I remember the first Top 40 that I heard, it would have been the one where the top three was 
Buffalo Stance, Crackers International EP, and Especially For You. I mean, what a great one to have hit on. I mean, that's the thing, I think. Sometimes you get the bug, don't you, thinking that all pop music is going to be as good as what you're hearing that first time. Obviously, you know, Buffalo Stance is a bit a bit of a one-off. Not all pop music is going to be as fantastic as Buffalo Stance. I mean, I still remember I was crouching next to the silver radio tape player that my mum and dad had. Just to kind of, you know, there was just such an exuberance about Buffalo Stance. It just sounded absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it was, it was such a moment. And from then I became completely obsessed with taping things off the radio and taping things off um, the top 40. But because I was rationed with how many tapes I could have, I'd only tape the bits of the songs that I deemed worthy of tape space. So, <laughs> Making your own mixes then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Completely accidentally so. But I, I remember, you know, I think I've still got some of the tapes, like just having the choruses from Looking for Linda on and cutting out all the verses sort of deeming the verses just not worthy of the tape space or you know in Sam Brown's stop I can remember there's an abrupt moment where I decide that kind of the musical break in the middle just isn't quite worth the tape space but you know the choruses and the verses are so it was all of that kind of going on and um I just absolutely loved pop music I'd say so um the fact that my childhood kind of coincided with the peak of stock acting in Waterman was quite interesting because I can remember going to, I must have been six or seven, going to a ballet recital and all of these little girls kind of coming in, you know, doing their, we were all kind of doing our little displays for the parents and stuff. And there were a group of older girls that were allowed to do a slightly more sort of modern routine to a piece of pop music. And I remember it so vividly, just hearing this bit of music and it was just like someone injecting sugar into my ears that was never going to give you up by Rick Astley. Like when you're that age, six or seven, just you're just like, well, that's that's the best bit of music ever recorded. <laughs> yeah, I have another uh, another very strong memory of being in Ireland with all my cousins and and some of us doing dance routine to Kylie Minogue's "Turn It Into Love." No one takes choreography more seriously than a group of girls between seven and eleven. You know, I can remember really enjoying dancing to that song as well. So there must have been something about Stockton Waterman. They just they just knew how to they knew how to tap into that sort of child sensibility of what you think a good pop song should be. It's a good thing I think that you know thirty. Hang on, I'm going to lose count. Thirty odd years later, um, they're now actually seen for what they were, which was you know this wonderful pop machine. Definitely. I mean, you know, I I think it was quite a bit later, actually. I mean, this is this is the strange thing about this era of the 90s that we're going to talk about is that um, mm. you did you really didn't hear that much 80s music. I was about 15 before I heard you spin me around like a record. Mm. And when I heard that, I, I, I thought, God, that's fantastic. It's really, really good. And then the same for the Mel and Kim record. I think I was I, I was quite an old teenager before I heard respectable by Mel and Kim which mm. I just think is fantastic it's such a good record so yeah when they're at their best they're really good yeah the, yeah. You know, the 80s were kind of parked completely yes it's it's really interesting because you hear so much 80s stuff now that you think that it was always like that actually some and we'll talk about it when we get to the track listing but some of my there were aspects of my enthusiasm for some of the things that I was hearing when I was a child because I didn't have any idea of what things in the 80s might have inspired some of them. Hmm. But yeah, later on when I heard some of the 80s, I thought, oh, I see, that's where that person got that idea. Ah, okay. <laughs> that, that wonderful unpicking of pop culture in a kind of retrospective way, it's brilliant, isn't it? From quite early on, I, I enjoyed that slightly geekish finding links between 
different musical genres like I can remember one of those uh, one of those albums that my mum and dad had there was a Chieftains there was a Chieftains album and on one of the tracks it's Van Morrison singing a song called She Moved Through the Fair Mm. and at Christmas we used to you know sort of get together as a family sometimes and like sing a couple of songs as one of the things that we do and my dad would sometimes sing that song and I always found it so haunting and and really beautiful as a song and then I can remember on one of the first top 40s I listened to hearing Simple Minds doing Belfast Child and realizing that they'd um based that song on that melody of She Moved Through the Fair and thinking oh that's really interesting like so pop songs can use folk songs as part of their basis that's that's quite a yeah that thing of crossover genres quite yeah yeah, Yeah. that's amazing Let's move then to the summer of 1992. What was life like for you in 1992? I suppose this was pretty much the final summer of my childhood. I think by the time summer 93 had come around, you know, my face was exploding and my body was being sort of pulled in all kinds of different directions. So retrospectively, it's got that kind of slight, you know, grand finale feel to it. I remember it as a really warm summer, but I don't know if that's that's true or not, but it feels like it was a very hot summer and um, I was growing up in the Welsh countryside so I associate a lot of these songs with the kind of sand dunes and fields and all of those kind of things which is actually a great backdrop for pop music. Yeah I think that it's a really interesting time because in terms of the 90s people quite often focus I think they they like to focus on 1990 and the Mm. sort of you know the Manchester uh, stuff or they like to focus on Britpop I think that there's less focus put on this. I mean, this was when I started buying Smash Hits was this year. And I think it's when people always say, oh, that's when Smash Hits had started to really decline in popularity and wasn't really a thing anymore. And I was thrashing around trying to find pop stars to latch onto. And it was quite an interesting moment to be trying to do that. As I mentioned earlier, there was something about what women were doing in 92 that I think makes it quite interesting. It feels like quite quite a striking year in the sense that you had Katie Lang and Sophie B. Hawkins and On Vogue and Shakespeare's sister. And it was the same year that Absolutely Fabulous started. And yeah. I think that that's, you know, quite significant in its own way. And Madonna had her erotica album out. And I remember so vividly an interview that she gave to Simon Bates to launch it. Yeah, one of the most Alan Partridge bits <laughs> of like, Yeah, it started with him going, Madonna, sexual crusader or dirty big girl's blouse. He didn't, did he? He did. That's how it starts. I I taped it off the radio. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And actually, as you say that, I'm just picturing Steve Coogan at his best. Yes, exactly. I think there was also something quite interesting about this moment in time. There were all of these kind of youth subcultures going on. There was grunge, there was rave. There was a lot of records out that were kind of based around... Uh, drug culture and and this, that, the other. I think that if you were listening to pop music, for the most part, there were exceptions, but I think you generally had to get on board with what the adults were doing. And there wasn't that much pop music in comparison to, say, later on the 90s or early noughties that was specifically marketed to kids. I think at this point you had to just get on board with what everyone else is doing. That's absolutely fascinating because as we start to pull through this album, there's a real push and pull. (laughs) You mentioned it, though, that to me... And I've, I think I've said this to, to to various guests that have dipped their toe into the 90s um, on the podcast. That post-baggy, pre-Britpop period 
it's such a fascinating period because there was just this kind of kind of blank canvas. The 90s was beginning to move to something else, but it hadn't decided what it was moving towards yet. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, complete mirroring going on there. Yeah. And it's, um, it always feels a bit, because sometimes I hear people talking about this period as kind of the forgotten nothing period before everything started to get exciting again. And, you know, you do, there's a tiny part of you that feels, oh, oh, you know, you feel a bit sad about that being when your childhood and your interest was sort of taking off because it lead, it does lead to me, I have to say, people who are 10 years older than me, I, I asked them what it was like, you know, to, to be 10, at the beginning of the 80s and what, you know, adamant and all of that stuff was kind of big, you know, and um, because I'm sure it was very exciting to have that array of pop stars to latch mm-hmm. on to, but um, there's a lot to get into here. Oh, so. there's a lot, yeah. a lot to get into. On this album. <laughs> um, and what an interesting time Summer 92 was. Now 22, 34 of the biggest hits around. Now 22, that's what I call music. I've got my vinyl copy here. Doesn't sound great, listeners, because lots of tracks are crammed onto four sides of vinyl. But we're going to go to record one side one, and it is Erasure from the ABBA-esque EP, and uh, take a chance on me. So do you think this was the start of the ABBA revival? Yes. <laughs> That's the first thing I've written on my notes. Yeah. Um, because we're, we're still a couple of months away from ABBA Gold. Yeah, because I hadn't... It's, I mean, it's, it's so strange considering that you hear them everywhere now. Yeah. The only exposure I'd had to ABBA before this was seeing that French and Saunders skit that had mm. been on the telly. And they weren't actually singing an ABBA song, they were just singing a pretend ABBA song. So yeah, so this would have been my introduction to these songs. And um, I think it's it's quite hard to cover ABBA because I think that the original versions are always really quite immaculate for the most part. Um, what do you think of it? Oh, I love it. I went back and revisited it. And you know that way that you've forgotten about MC Kinky's rap in the middle? MC Kinky, oh god, it's fantastic! I, I, in 1990, I remember watching the chart show and seeing a clip of Everything Starts with an E, yeah. which I loved. And it was like a, you know, brilliant. Yes, it's a very 90s production. Erasure, who'd you know, kind of had such that run at the end of the 80s. First number one, 1992. Incredible, isn't it? And I really like. I remember thinking that Lay All Your Love on Me was my favourite of mm. these ones, actually. But I really liked Erasure. There were very few Erasure singles from around that time that I didn't like. I think I pretty much liked them all. So you move on to track two. Um, A bit of a dance classic, finally, by C.C. Peniston. Such a classic, isn't it? I I can't kind of imagine a time before having heard this song now. It's got that element... It's got that kind of timeless quality of some of the best 70s disco records, Mm. doesn't it? Of it just feeling like something that in any situation where people are dancing, you could put it on and people would get on the dance floor. And um, yeah, and I like how it's been used now as part of the Priscilla Queen of the Desert stage show and film. It's, you know, been kind of like uh, given a different interpretation in, in that as well. So yeah, it's a good one, isn't it? It's got that great combination of a great vocalist and a real strong kind of soulful gospel style singer knowing the cc rogers song someday which was a kind of big massive chicago house track it's got oh, that yes. big, yeah it's that big kind of chicago house piano sound thing only held off number one by do you know which song oh no what was it shakespeare's sister's day oh 
if you're going to be held off by any track, I suppose it, it was that. And I think in any other week, that would have been a number one single. Yeah, completely. So we stay with the kind of disco tracks. Please Don't Go had been a hit for Casey and the Sunshine Band back in 1980, number three. Um, and here we've got KWS, given it large 1992 style. Yes, yeah. I mean, a lot of what was in the charts, or at least how I remember it, was dance music that had a bit of a kind of similar sound to this one there was a kind of trend i think for sometimes like covering 70s songs and sort of taking out any element of kind of melancholy or anything and and slightly sort of flattening the sound and um (laughs) what you uh, what you're suggesting (laughs) they've taken away all the good elements of it that was very well put but you know <laughs> upbeat i mean what do you what do you think what do you think i totally agree uh, yeah <laughs> it's we're in this kind of rather small and thankfully small section of of side one that could be called the hitman in her section but it worked because again five weeks at number one yes it's interesting i wonder what made something like this KWS version of Please Don't Go so incredibly popular. This was number one May into June. So you're beginning to hit maybe the hot weather. You're maybe beginning to hit the kind of holiday season. Yeah, that's probably it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so moving from one side of the Hitman and Her Studio to the other one. Uh, <laughs> we, we have to take that. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting, isn't it? When you hear the first thing by a band and you remember seeing the video and you'd have no inkling that they were going to take over everything. No. You know, I mean, they were quite good at selecting which songs to cover when they did do covers because they did this and Relight My Fire. Mm. It's a bit similar to what we were saying before. I mean, it's quite nicely produced, I think. And, it, you know, the Tavares version is original. It is kind of, again, more moody, yeah. a bit slower. The saturation of the Take That fandom was quite difficult. If you didn't feel that you were a massive fan of them mm. as a teenage girl at school, it could get really quite you know i did find it quite unbearable at times i did have a poem published on the youth pages of teletext about how much i hated them i mean you know i can see retrospectively now they have a lot more charm than a lot of other boy bands that are around in the 90s so but just in my defense being a girl at school it was just if you weren't in the fan club then it was a lot a number seven hit so they were on the way yeah it's interesting this one and e17's house of love Mm. Both of them, I think, are better than when you get later in the 90s and you get some of the boy bands that always think it's a really good idea to just do a really syrupy ballad. Yeah. Like in comparison, I'd much rather hear It Only Takes a Minute or House of I really like House of Love. Oh, yeah. And the, because they're both, you know, taking a bit of inspiration from the sort of more interesting... They both sound a little bit like they're trying to sound like someone like Utah Saints or whatever, you know. Yeah. And um, make fun danceable records which is so much better than just doing something totally generic yeah so So we are deep in summer 92 we are dancing our way through the charts and we have nick berry (laughs) nick berry singing heartbeat the buddy holly track there should be ominous chimes here shouldn't there because i think this indicates something about what's going to be happening in the charts over the next few years robson and jerome getting to number one Mm -hmm. over common people i think was one of the times that i got really quite angry with chart placings and um i didn't know him off the telly really so i didn't really understand what was happening (laughs) this this was not on my and i've written this down not on my radar and the sequencing here is obviously very populist because it was a number two track 
even the rest of this side in some ways it kind of breaks that kind of run slightly yeah let's move quickly on because it gets better <laughs> gets a lot better the song that was the second best selling single of the year behind Whitney Houston snap rhythm as a dancer a couple of years ago I went in Cheshire to a bonfire night display of fireworks and they were doing it to 90s music and I can remember they started this display and they were playing Oasis and Verve tracks and I can remember thinking what this seems like a strange way of soundtracking your firework display and then all of that suddenly stopped and Rhythm as a Dancer started playing. And I thought, yes, yes. Now, this is the ultimate bonfire night Absolutely. tune. This is what you want. You know, it's got that feeling to it, doesn't it? Oh. Like if maybe maybe you're in a waltzer. I don't know. What do you think? Stephen, that story started. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I was at a, fire, uh, a fireworks display in Cheshire and I met Turbo B from Snap. <laughs> I, was, I was really hoping that was going to... And then he started telling me the secret lyrical content of Rhythm as a Dancer. Um, <laughs> I mean, he was there, but I didn't want to name drop, you know. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Number one for six weeks, Sirius is cancer, rhythm is a dancer. I think that was voted one of the worst ever lines in a song. Yeah, it, it's not. I mean, it's not the best rap. I mean, he. I'm. I'm not. I'm not sure about some of his raps, Toby. But um, yeah. even now, I would set that alongside something like CC Peniston as an absolute guaranteed floor filler anytime, anyway. Oh, definitely. I, I kind of think of it alongside something like um Corona Rhythm of the Night. Yeah. Or, but, you know those, those kind of records or. Uh, you sure do, or I love you, baby. Some, or, yeah, or Dreamer by Living Joy. Some of it, just like there was, there yep. was some quite good dance tracks of that nature around this time. Oh yeah, did Snap not used to have an exclamation mark at the end of it? I I think so. Yeah, not on this sleeve. Oh, I'm going to have to question that. Oh, do you think that was a typo? I do, I do like a bit of grammatical irregularities in a yeah in, in my Eurobeat. I'm going to say I love Utah Saints. I loved Utah Saints then. I love Utah Saints now. It's interesting, isn't it? It's like that kind of slight sort of DIY sounding dance music that was around at this time, a bit like kind of oceanic and that kind of thing. I mean, it's funny how sometimes it didn't it didn't always come together. For a record like this, I just I just loved it at the time. I just thought that it was it's just just sounds, you know, it's a, it's an exciting record, I think. Yeah. And obviously you've got that Kate Bush sample in there, which was fully approved by Kate Bush. Was it? Yeah. That's interesting. Was she um, Was she quite selective in that respect? I think so. Can't think of any other stadium house tracks that had any Kate Bush tracks in them, but seemingly she sold the Utah Saints video footage. Didn't give them it. She sold them video footage of her to be put in the video as well. So fully approved by Kate. It's, it's one of those ones, as well, that one thing that I like about... 92 when you put a group of songs together there's quite a nice amount of records that don't feel like they're taking themselves incredibly seriously and that's part of their charm so there's something about you just don't something good you hear it and it feels like it's inherently got a bit of a sense of humor to it oh yeah as a dance record it's not sort of solemnly presenting itself to you as inc- you know incredibly serious and i think that that's what makes some of these records really fun um right so we go next to the cure and it's pop cure it's not dark Dark Moody Cure, it's Pop Cure, uh, with Friday I'm in Love. I, I mean, again, such a classic now, is it? You hear it all the time. I think The Cure were quite were quite clever in the way that they presented themselves because, you know, it was very moody and uh, gothic and uh, I think I found the, the video for Lullaby absolutely terrifying as a kid. Mm. By doing that, by kind of throwing you off guard a little bit in that way, they could sneak in some of the most incredibly 
you know, radio-friendly tunes. Mm. And something like this is just, like, there, there isn't really anyone that strongly objects to Friday I'm in Love, I don't think. And it's, I really like the line, such a gorgeous sight to see you eat in the middle of the night. I think that's, oh, I, I always think that that's the definition of love to me. See, yeah. there's, enough, there's enough cure bits in here amidst all the pop wonderfulness to make it the cure and the video as well it's 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 a tim pope video so it's got all those kind of cure things in there do you think it's too pop oh no no not at all or do you think do you think that's it well like, when you hear a record like this do you think oh the cure is, is selling out or do nah, you think it's, nah, it's just as much i mean what, what, yeah for yeah. me one of the best cure tracks is in between days and this to me is almost like a kind of relative yes. cousin of in between days yes um, or just like heaven people love just yeah, like heaven as well yeah. it's another one that was so popular yeah it's, completely it's that type of cure no 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 not at all an interesting story that allegedly Robert Smith was convinced that he'd stolen the chord sequence from it because it sounded so familiar. And he had to had to play it to lots of friends who said, No, Robert, it is genuinely yours. You haven't you haven't stolen this. Um, <laughs> which is, you know. Yeah, I think that from the first moment you you hear it, you it does feel like one of those ones that's just been around forever. Nineteen ninety-two, I went to see the cure, the Barlands in Glasgow. They had just released this album, Wish. And Robert Smith came on and he said, we're going to play this track. We've never played it on a Friday before. And burst straight into it. Oh, wow. The whole place just went absolutely crazy. What an introduction. Oh, that must have been fantastic. Was, was the atmosphere incredible? Oh, yeah. And I mean, at that point, it was, it was, it was a relatively new track, but everybody knew it because it, yeah. it just connected with people already. So wonderful. Um, the Days of Pearly Spencer by Mark Armand. I love this. I find it one of the most evocative uh, singles on this collection for some reason. It really takes me back to that time. And um, I think it's got really great, lush Trevor Horn production that you can really tell. It's a great version of the original by David McWilliams. I always really connected to Mark Armour for some reason. Like my introduction to him was something that's got a hold of my heart with Gene Pitney. Yeah. And I had quite a crush on him in that video. I think there was always just something so interesting and um yeah just like had such kind of incredible stage presence or something yeah the production on this is incredible it's so good isn't I it i mean the whole tenement symphony album that this comes from um he does a fantastic version of scott walker's jackie as well yes yes that was my introduction to that oh, song was hearing mark Cummins' version it was I, wonderful and it, yeah me too i mean i didn't really know much of scott walker's work by that point and then you go back it's like we're saying earlier you go back and you dig into other things you find things but this is a yeah. great example for me of that wonderful non-genre specific 90s very soon Britpop would come in even going back a couple of years that kind of 89 90 i don't know if this track would have worked as well but it's this lovely kind of anything's open period in the 90s yeah, you're so, you're so right, and it's got that kind of theatrical quality and the fact that you can't easily categorise it as a record, mm. I think, is what makes this period of time, you know, strong argument for it because, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not it's not just ticking a box. Absolutely. So it's wonderful. Definitely. Yeah. And I would I would um, advise any listeners to go back and find the Tenement Symphony album. It is, it is a wonderful... In fact, it's an album. That That's the beauty of it. It's a it's an album all the way through, which, yeah. which is always great. Um, Bell Bottom Tear by The Beautiful South. This wasn't really massive. I do remember hearing it at the time, but I think that I didn't, it wasn't hugely on my radar. Um, I think I would have found it a bit, yeah, a bit too much to deal with at the time. How do you feel about it? You're being wonderfully polite again. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I, I, I've already, I've already stopped receiving Christmas cards from Paul Heaton because of various comments on this podcast. So, uh, rather than, rather than change the habit of a lifetime, I'm going to say no, thank you. I did go and listen to 36D, the single after this, I think, or was it before? And um, really, really bad song. I mean, I think they have said now that they understand that it's that it's not a good. It's not a good song, and yeah. it's um. Let's move on. Um, so, if you're listening on a cassette or record, you're flipping over. If you're on a CD, you're just moving on to track eleven. A very rare, lesser spotted Prince in the new generation on now albums because he didn't turn up very often on now albums, and it's the track called Thunder. Yes, and um, my friend had the Diamonds and Pearls album that this mm-hmm. came off, and um, it had a holographic cover do you remember yeah. so if you moved it around yeah that was very exciting yeah that was my friend Brianna and um yeah it was we'd sort of pass it around <laughs> just looking at it and go it's incredible um I mean I I really really love print he's one of the people that I'm keenest on in music so it makes it quite hard for me to be objective and many of the, I think this is this is great. I mean, th- this was the album that introduced me to him, really. And um, some of it, it wasn't it wasn't a sort of smooth introduction to Prince completely. Like, you know, you had the song Cream on mm. that as well, which is kind of very T-Rex. And uh, you had Money Don't Matter Tonight that came out before this, which is a really, really beautiful song as well. I mean, it's Prince being Prince. It's, you know, it's a barnstormer. What do you think? Even, even when Prince is just being kind of average pedestrian Prince, he's still... Yeah, five hundred times better than the beautiful South. So, you know, <laughs> exactly. Let, let's be honest. Um, yeah, it was the final release of Diamonds and Pearls. I'm totally with you. Money don't matter tonight is by far my favourite Prince song on that album. I just love it. Oh, and, and you don't it's, hear it's it. It's so lovely. It's incredibly understated. You don't hear it. No, I I don't know why you don't hear. It. I I once queued for eight hours to see Prince at Coco in Camden, and it was just such a great night. I saw him four times, and. Um, it was such an amazing um, live act. So, yeah. I think one of only two appearances on the Number Now albums, the other one being Get Off on Now 20. Now, next yes. to that, we have got a band absolutely on their stride in 1992, which is U2 even better than The Real Thing. This this one's interesting. Again, you hear the, the, these U2 songs quite a lot, don't you? Mm. Um, I did quite like The Fly. This would have been okay. It's quite interesting. There's, a, there's an episode of Sex in the City. There's a storyline where... Harry is going out with this guy called Berger and they're having a bit, even though they really like each other, they're having a bit of difficulty with the sort of sexual chemistry and um, their various sort of tried and failed attempts. There's a sort of scene where they kiss each other and it's clear that they're going to have a good night together. And the soundtrack that kicks in at that point is this song from U2. And I've always thought it's quite an interesting because they, you know, as a a series, it had a lot of kind of great 70s disco and this, that, the other. But this, yeah, this was a song that they decided to indicate that you're going to have a really good night. So I always thought it was an interesting soundtrack choice. How how do do you feel about it? What I probably preferred was the fact that there was a remix version of it, which actually was a bigger hit than this version. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. Yes. Yeah, I like, I quite liked it when they went Bond when um, Bono wrote the um, GoldenEye theme. I thought that was good yeah. for Tina Turner. And um, the Hold Me, Kiss Me, Thrill Me, Kill Me. You know, what was it? I'm not even going to oh. attempt it. I was just going to say yes. <laughs> there was whole... But that one from the Batman film, <laughs> were... I thought was good. Yeah, did Gloria Estefan have a song called exactly the same thing? I think she did. She did, which is why, because I was a, yeah, I, I, I had been a Gloria Estefan fan. Yeah, so Hold this Me, is why I'm me, stumbling. Yes. Me, Kill Me. I think. Yes. Yeah, that, that was good. LSI by The Shaman. 
I think I did like this at the time. Uh, Mr. C was one of the people that I think we were latching onto as pop stars at the mm. time, you know, as like in- interesting, kind of funny people that we could, um, you know, project something onto because he was quite, you know, had his own had his own little character, didn't well, he? You, and, know, um... you mentioned smash hits earlier. I can imagine Mr. C dipping into the biscuit tin for questions. I can imagine Mr. Yes! C telling people um, what his favourite colour of socks were and what and you know whether Tuesday was a whale or you know I can I can see Mr. C fully buying into the pop thing there. Yes, exactly, exactly. No, that that he absolutely did the biscuit tin thing. Yeah, yeah. I watched an old episode of Top of the Pops with my mum recently, and this was on, and she misheard it as Love, Sex, and Cheddar Pants, which I thought was quite funny. Well, I do seem to remember. I think it might be Nikki Campbell called it Love, Sex, and Teletext. So <laughs> just to make a connection to your poetry earlier. On. Um, how did you feel about this one? Um, it's yeah, it's okay. It's probably not one of the best shaman tracks. It works. It's fine. I mean, it works really quite well. Yeah. But even if you if you consider that the shaman are in the kind of shadow of Ebenezer Good, and for me, yeah. Mountain Pro Gen, whatever you want to call it, is still the absolute pinnacle shaman track. Sometimes it's interesting to look at this, the size on an album and work out what's the theme. So side one, we've had kind of relatively big pop dance. I don't know what side two is, Prince U2 shame. It's almost kind of rock dance indie. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and that's kind of shaman really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. There was a kind of interesting thing going on at the time in the way it there was this strange fusion of rave culture mm. with kind of like indie bands that had recognisable... I mean, I suppose that was the thing. Sometimes it was hard to tra- translate dance music into Top of the Pops performances and something that The Shaman did really well was that they were doing this, you know, yeah. very rave-influenced music, but you had recognisable members of the band yeah. that people could sort yeah. of, you know, and, latch onto. So that was great. And that's a good point you make because radio... And Top of the Pops, so we are, you know, the kind of two bastions, Radio 1 and Top of the Pops, were probably still trying to get their head around dance music. And yeah, you're right, Mr. C brought that personality in the biscuit tin and, and he brought that kind of nod and a wink to it. And suddenly there was, yes. there was a character to latch on to. I think I can still do one of the raps from Boss Drum. So there was obviously something about his style that stuck with some of us. So. And if, you, if you're a subscriber to the premium version of this podcast, you can now hear... No, sorry. Radio stations charging money to listen to premium non-advert stations. Terrible. Anyway, um, yeah. Number one in Finland, LSI. I'm going to step aside now for what I think is quite possibly one of the best tracks of the entire decade, Disappointed by Electronic. Oh, isn't it good? It's so good. We could just spend the next hour alone talking about how good (laughs) Disappointed. Uh, I mean, it's to me, it's just, it's the Pet Shop Boys and it's New Order and it's the Smiths and it's all rolled into one and it's... And it's it's like a fine wine, you know, it it gets better with every passing year. I mean, so many of the Pet Shop Boys influenced records obviously this is this isn't just them but they have that Mm. that feeling of kind of pathos of sort of time passing and love and these sort of fleeting moments of joy and all of these things i mean there's something about this the way it so neil tennant isn't it like reaches this crescendo of occurrence and the big word of the chorus is disappointed while the sun breaks through the clouds musically while they're all singing disappointed oh it's just and johnny marr you know i mean melodically i always think he's just a genius oh it's so good and you've absolutely nailed it there only somebody as wonderful as a lyricist as neil tennant can 
create someone falling in love, but only to recognise that quite soon they are going to be disappointed by that love. Yeah. I mean, it's ah, it's just incredible. I, and I think what's interesting as well is that, I mean, it's 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 all Neil Tennant vocals. It's almost mm. like Ben and Sumner just said, I, I'm just going to stand in reverence at the side here because there's nothing <laughs> I can bring to this track other than presence. Yeah. And it's, it's just fabulous. Was it exciting? Because obviously I, I had to kind of find out a bit more about them all retrospectively. But at the time, was it very exciting to have them as a super group? Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, I can imagine. But Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe have always paid reverence to New Order. You know, and there's, I think the story goes that they, they remember hearing Blue Monday um, and obviously Neil and Chris at that point were just beginning to pull together the Pet Shop Boys and were making those demos in New York with Bobby O hearing Blue Monday and realising they've beaten us to it <laughs> that's the sound we're looking for yeah, but yeah. then that kind of shift around and obviously you know, the kind of payback you know you've got Neil Tennant now here with Bernard Sumner you know it was just incredible it was uh, am I gushing too much I think I may be gushing too much <laughs> um, yeah I mean it's it's even better now than it was uh, to me at the time because I wasn't quite wasn't quite old enough at that point to, kind of, to get the full yeah. the full wo- wonderful joyous melancholia of the whole thing yeah. and um, and it was a yeah, standalone yeah, single as well it it wasn't it wasn't featured on any album it just was this standalone single and I'm going to give a shout out to previous guest on the show Niall McMurray who introduced me to a French singer called Mylene Farmer one of uh, Niall's favorite tracks of 1991 is a track called Desenchanté disenchanted and, oh, it, and I see. if okay, you go back yeah. and listen to it it's a wonderful sad melancholy electronic french pop track is it anything more perfect in the world oh there you go oh i see oh that's so that's fascinating and seemingly uh, oh, is very much partly inspired because the uh, the chorus goes disenchanted once more and Neil yeah. Tennant was a big fan so do you prefer this or getting away with it oh. or can you not pick I don't know why I'm making you pick. It's just it's mean, isn't it? Yeah. Probably still getting away with it, I think. Yeah, I mean, getting away with it is such classic, isn't it? It's, it's so just, good. Um, yeah, I could do a whole podcast on that on its own, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll just, I'll just publicly go on air to say, now missed that track. Could have been on now 19, maybe? 17. Now 17. Should have been on now 17. There we go. Okay, so next we've got uh, Shakespeare's sister. Follow up to stay. I don't care. Well, I loved Shakespeare's Sister at the time. I became quite a big fan. It was one of the albums that I invested in, mm. was um, Home Only Yours. It's interesting that we have The Cure on this album as well, because one song that I hadn't heard when I heard this uh, is Love Cats. And I do think it's a bit influenced by Love Cats musically. Oh, yeah. It sounds quite similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing about Home Only Yours. It was, um, you know, this concept album based on a 50s B-movie called Catwoman from the Moon. And it's got just all of these different kind of um, musical influences in it. Like my favourite song on it is one called Black Sky, which is kind of like if Stone Roses had, you know, teamed up with Kate Bush or something like that. It's like, it's really, really good. I just thought they were a really interesting band. And when you were looking for pop stars... They fitted the bill. Mm. They were there, you know, doing something visually really interesting. Um, their videos were fantastic. There's a really great live performance of them doing this on top of the pops that people should look up on YouTube. How, how do you feel about it? It's them? great. It really is. I mean, you've got such a, a behemoth ballad like Stay. That's the song you now hear. Yeah. You might hear your history, perhaps, but my favourite track is Hello, Turn Your Radio On. Oh, so good. Which is, and it's almost like, it's one of those songs, you know how you, 
you have one of those songs that you that you want to let everybody hear. Yes. You, you will yeah. have forgotten this song. And it has just got this amazing groundswell of a chorus. It's fabulous. Siobhan Fahey is just a pop star personified, as is Marcella Detroit. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful combination. Yes. Is it Electronically Yours, the Martin Ware podcast? Yes, yeah. There's a great interview with Marcella Detroit on one of those episodes that um, is really worth checking out. And her career had just been phenomenal, you know, all um all her work with mm-hmm. Eric Clapton and Robin Gibb and Alice Cooper and all of these things. And as you say, Siobhan, you know, coming from Bananarama, I, I just really like the guts of her coming from something that was sort of, you know, people had really loved. It was so popular and her going, yeah, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to form a band called Shakespeare's Sister and I'm going to be this ostentatiously sort of experimental and, you know, it won't it won't be it won't be kind of there to kind of fit anyone's expectations. Like I I saw a TVAM interview with her on YouTube about it. And um, I think they were just sort of asking her kind of going, but you know, Dave Stewart's a pretty rich guy. You're not tempted to just sort of stay at home and, you know, you could have like quite a nice life. It's, I suppose it's, you know, it was very, it was a little bit sort of patronizing going, oh, well, it's quite nice that you've got this new pet project. And, and you think, yeah, she's about to, she's about to be really successful with it yeah. and, and good on her. Even the tension between the two of them I like is, yeah. is you know, it's a bit like, it's funny that they're called after a Shakespeare sister after a Smith song because, you know, you had the tension between Morrissey and Ma that was so successful creatively. Mm. And it's it's wonderful that the two of them seem to collaborate on almost every song that they released. Yeah. So it was a proper, creative, successful relationship. 1992 was an interesting and strange time for indie music. And there's not much indie on here. Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine. Do re me so far so good. This wasn't really on my radar at the time. I was more familiar with Sheriff Fatman, mm. and um, but I'm I'm glad that it's on here because it feels to me like something that's very truthful about 1992. It, it you know it's a good it's a good sort of contrast yeah. to some of the other ballads that we've got on here. You know it sounds a bit like um, Pop Elite itself. Like I really like Defcon yeah. One by Populate itself. That's a great record, and that had come a few years earlier. And yeah, it feels as if it's by putting them on here that they're, they're, you know it's it's a little it's a little bit of a taster of the sort of, of of the kind of music that what feels like it was very big at the time. It was. What do you think? It was and yeah. I was kind of you know digging around and thinking, okay, so what who were those acts that were kind of similar to this at the time? And you think of bands like the Wonder Stuff. Wedding present. The wedding. Yeah. Well, do you know the wedding present? Yeah. Talking about tracks that are missing, right? The wedding present released twelve singles in nineteen ninety two. Pretty much all of them made the top twenty. Not featured at all, and I think it's a shame because one of the tracks that I would absolutely have put on here would have been "Come Play with Me." So, in some ways, Carter are kind of waving the flag here. <laughs> if you were to ask somebody to remember nineteen ninety two, they wouldn't pick this track. So, in that time capsule of now twenty two, it's brilliant because it tells that story. Yes, exactly. Yeah. When I got lost in the rabbit hole last week, I did end up watching Philip Schofield getting run over by Fruit Bat again at the stage of this party. Just put in Philip Schofield Fruit Bat into a set <laughs> and see what comes up because it's worth, because actually I think he did probably hurt him on the way down. <laughs> so, right. Okay. So, Wayne's World, uh, Everything About You by Ugly Kid Joe. So, yeah. Well, this is the thing. Now, this kind of music in my memory, feels as if it was so massive Mm. at the time. And I think this is kind of the only bit of it we get on this compilation. Like, my sister is four years older than I am. She had 
friends in bands they were so into their hair metal they also liked a bit of grunge I think you know she taught me a little bit of how to play Nothing Else Matters by Metallica on guitar you know all of these things felt huge and Wayne's World felt huge mm. and actually um, Rich my pod co-host and I we recorded a podcast about Wayne's World and that's you know really interesting it's um, Penelope Spheris who directed that and um, she had had this big background in directing rock documentaries mm. and actually she was in the running originally to direct This Is Spinal Tap some of the best bits of Wayne's World I think are Tia Carrera's like live performance sequences yeah. and um, you know they're really well shot and you can sort of see why it was so popular at the time. I think around about the same time, actually, they showed this as Spinal Tap on TV for the first time. And it was because, you know, heavy metal was huge. And it was it was the same it was the same year, wasn't it, yep. 92, where they had the Freddie Mercury tribute concert and Axl Rose was such a massive fixture of that concert. Mm. And um, so it's good to have Ugly Kid Joe on here as a sort of representation, I guess, yeah. of that genre of music. What do you think of this record? Yeah, it's, yeah. In some ways, it's the kind of more commercial end of what you're describing, because actually there's yeah. no grunge on here. There's no hair metal. If you consider some of the biggest albums of 92, well, you had Nevermind still still there. You had Pearl Jam. You had yeah. Metallica's album. In some ways, it's that slight pop nod to that. Well, I think at the time, as a kid, I did quite like it because I think when you're around that age, there's something about there being a song about you just hating everything yeah. about someone that's quite, <laughs> quite enjoying. Exactly. <laughs> Feels quite rebellious. Yeah, yeah. one for parents to say, stop singing that song. It's not nice. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So kind of pop rebellion. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> On a ragatip by SL2. Oh wow. Well this was this felt like quite a unifier at the time. I, I feel as if, you know, kind of the different my sister would have had these cool friends who were in, in, into kind of, you know, into heavy metal and this, that, the other. And I think I have a kind of memory of playing it in the car when we were on our way somewhere, the whole group of us different ages and everyone agreeing that SL2 on a ragatip is good. Yeah. Um, people seem to enjoy it a lot. <laughs> Well, it was one of the biggest UK dance labels was XL Records at the time. And this is, you know, the prodigy were beginning to come through. It's just such a fun track. Yeah. And it's um, based, I went and listened to Walk and Skank that it's based on, which is so good mm. as well. And do you think it kind of beckoned in the following years, a sort of ragged craze of, um, you know, there was Shaggy, Snow and Shabba Ranks. Do you remember that yeah. where it all kind of like came in? Yeah, I wonder whether it had a bit of an influence on that. Yeah. yeah. Certainly for me, it introduced yeah. me to, you know, that kind of Trojan sound. I think Out of Space by Prodigy did the same by introducing yes. me to Lee Scratch Perry and looking back at, you know, the kind of what else was going on in the charts right about that time, um, I've maybe cruelly called it cartoon techno. <laughs> Do you remember um, there was um, Urban Hype's trip to Trumpton? Yes, and the Smarties. Smarties yeah. and Seth Smart e yes. yes, nod and a wink. Now Eleven previously had done that wonderful side of House music at the time, Bomb the Bass and mm. Yaz and the Plastic Population, all that kind of stuff. And I don't know where it would have fitted on this album, but see if they'd just done a run of cartoon techno yeah. somewhere. Oh, complete. I mean, again, this one is one that feels like it has a sort of inherent sense of humour about it. Yeah. It's, it's really, I think it'd be quite, again, you'd be quite dour, I think, maybe to um, to hate on a ragatip. Yeah, yeah, it's just so fun. Yeah, it's great. Uh, Blue Room by The Orb. So I knew Little Fluffy Clouds by this point, but here we are with um, what was originally a 39-minute long song. 
Wow, that's incredible. I was completely unaware of it at the time. I too was aware of fluffy clouds. What do you make of this listening back to it now, Blue Room? I can appreciate that the Orba, you know, are making very sort of well well crafted music of a certain kind. I think my my preference though for for pop maybe overpowers my my instincts a little bit too much. I mean, having said that though, there are some there's some stuff by Underworld that I absolutely love and things. Yeah. It's not that I that I never like any music of this genre. It's not a track that turns up on karaoke lists very often. <laughs> I don't think. Blue Room by the Orb. Always, always interesting music. What's interesting is the the parent album for this UF Orb was a number one album in the middle of summer '92, which is what's what a strange wow. year 1992. What a time! What a time to be alive! What a time to be alive! <laughs> So let's move on then to, and it says on my record, record two, side one, or it could be CD two, if you're that way inclined. Hazard, Richard Marks. Well, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it sounds like it could maybe be from the 80s. Maybe it's just a sort of nostalgia thing. Uh, You know, records like this sounded quite good against the North Walian sound, you know, sorry, it sounded quite good against the North Wales landscape. Like, um, I remember hearing... Black Velvet for the first time, and that sounded really good under those conditions. If you're staring out to sea, oh, and um, in the Welsh hills, <laughs> yeah, exactly. to be written. Well, the thing is about this, I, I associated him with Right Here Waiting. So, so it's one of those records where when it starts, you think that he's just going to tell you how much he loves you, yeah. and then it's and then it's got this narrative that's really dark, which I really like. It, <laughs> it takes you to a place that you don't think you're going to go. So, it's quite dark, yeah. and spookily enough. My photocopier hasn't printed any notes for it. It's cut them off. How spooky. So there is <laughs> That is spooky. Here. That's there very you go. Spooky. Is it because you were about to slate it oh, in and you're just Catherine. being too polite? Catherine. <laughs> yeah. No. What what I had written in my notes was it's better than right here waiting. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, there um, you go. And, there you and, go. Um, and because of no notes, I can't remember what number it got to. I think it was number three or number four in the chart. So it was obviously like, yeah, it's got that slight dark sinister, but there was seemingly a wee... Some people were mildly interested in the plot of the story. Did he or didn't he kill a woman called Mary? It's almost like a kind of precursor to a film that you hadn't... It's like a trailer, actually. It Go is on. like a trailer, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I th- there's a there's footage of him performing it, I think, on Top of the Pops, where he's still got an incredible mullet oh. and it is like he's just been sent from a different era. Yeah. And um, Which, in some yeah. ways almost sets up this side of the record. <laughs> mullet. If we yes. give this side a subtitle, it may be mullet. I think that's that's very accurate. Yeah. Next we have Elton John, who most definitely doesn't have a mullet. I'm going to put my cards on the table and say I really like this track, The One. Oh, interesting. Okay, well tell me about that, because I didn't really... I don't think I was aware of it at the time, actually. Well, which is which is odd. I wonder whether at a certain age, you anything that sounds sort of too adult, you just kind of you know, well, this phase thing. out. So if this side was called the mullet, it would be in brackets adult oriented rock because there's quite a bit okay, of it on yeah. this side. It's not a well remembered Elton John song, but it's certainly a big song. Yes, that's that's very true. I have a difficult relationship with Elton John. I have to say, I'm, I there are definitely some Elton John songs that I completely appreciate. Uh, a, very well crafted, but yeah, I have. Well, I have a bit diplomatic of a again, Catherine. <laughs> a, a, a career in politics. 
<laughs> Wonderfully crafted song, Elton. Thank you. I mean, I think that this just represented, you know, the, uh, the, the idea of adulthood that I wasn't interested in yeah. at the time. You know, well, it sounds mature. It sounds considered. I mean, you know, who wants that? Well, let's be honest, Catherine. It's a, it's a place where sex and love no longer gel. Well, exactly. Which in, its, in itself, to be honest, this is something going back. 1992, there was this real push and pull between the kind of CD album culture, the kind of grown-up pop, and the bubblegum stuff. And this, actually, the whole of this second CD of Now 22, in a lot of ways, wrestles with that. It's trying to work out what's going on, and it's almost like the adults are still trying to take over the charts. Yes, I think that's so true. There was that thing at the time where either... There were these sort of two contrasts where either you thought that once you got old enough, you'd be out and you'd be at the wildest party ever, mm. or you'd be in an extremely serious relationship with someone. Yeah. And those were the two contrasts yeah. that you were presented with in the charts. Yeah, it was a real wrestle for the charts going on. The following year, 93, you see the revolution at Radio 1 happening. A lot of what we saw in the first half of this album, I don't care, pop, frivol, which is what makes pop so brilliant is kind of slightly put to the side here. And that's not to say there aren't some good tracks coming up, but it's it's certainly much more of a nod towards mum and dad in the car. Yes, definitely. So the B-sides of the one are called Suit of Wolves and Fat Boys and Ugly Girls. Wow, what titles? Never hear those songs anymore, Elton. That's a shame. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost interested in what a Suit of Wolves looks and sounds like. <laughs> I don't know, but there we go. Roy Orbison, <laughs> um, I Drove All Night. So this has been a big hit for Cindy Lauper in 89. Posthumously, here is um, the Big O's version. Yeah, well, this is another one that's become a classic. I have to say the Cindy Lauper one is the one that I latch onto mm. when it comes to I Drove All Night. I remember seeing the video for it on top of the pops and there was something about her peroxide hair and her bare feet and red dress. Yeah. I thought she looked fantastic. And also the, a female protagonist for this song, I think is possibly a little bit more interesting. Yeah. More interestingly, though, is the, the the music video, and I mentioned it to you as a as a film buff, because uh, the music video has got Jason Priestley and Jennifer Connelly in it. Wow! Well, there you go. It's one of those Jennifer kind of, Connelly, very oh. very current reference as well as being an eighties yeah. reference. Yeah. Do you remember that time when like um, those big black and white nineties videos in the early nineties? Those big Hollywood... oh yeah, like Chris Isaac's yes. one and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Get... Oh, completely. So the video yeah. is a whole narrative about that. And eighth biggest selling track of the year next. Jimmy Neal and Ain't No Doubt. Why don't you go first? Okay, so Jimmy Neal was a great TV star and um, big big presence. Um, and here he is here. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> I can't say much. Okay, shall I, shall, yeah. shall I make the case for Ain't No Doubt? For one thing, it's a, it's a TV star making a record. Yes. And if we compare it to Nick Berry's attempt... Good point. Yeah. Okay. Then there's there's something about this where you think everyone involved is you know best foot forward trying to create something good. I think there's some nice influences in here. Like I think the she's lying refrain is very Neil Tennant influence. Oh yeah. I think yeah. that it's a little bit. What have I done to deserve this? Mm. That that part of it. I think there's something about the fact that it's not trying to be cool no. in any way. And actually, yeah, that's a good point. Jimmy Neal has never taken himself too seriously. And actually, nod to Guy Pratt, a very famous bass player, does a very good podcast 
with Gary Kemp called The Raconteurs. What is good about this track is the female vocal. So good. Sylvia Mason-James, who's a very famous backing singer. And actually, you mentioned Neil Tennant did a lot of work with the Pet Shop Boys. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Um, One thing I can remember I didn't like at the time was they left her out of the video. uh, Yeah, because it's all those telephonists. And it's like, yeah, which is a bit of a shame, because actually you could argue that her vocal is is the big center point of the song probably the poppiest thing on this side i suppose and also helps to eradicate his version of love don't live here anymore that's very bad that's very bad that version, yeah. Um, but yeah so from that point of view much better i think i've just managed to pull that back what do you think i think you did very well um from there we continue very much in the drive time fm world unchain my heart by joe cocker i think i i quite like this at the time i think i'd seen or around this time i think i was introduced to the film the commitments mm. and um which i really really liked and so a song like this sort of sounded like it was trying to tap into you know classic soul i really liked soul music the commitments type soul sound was really really big and of course it's a classic ray charles track from from the 60s so because i was trying to work out why this was back out I think there was a best of Joe Cocker came out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, what a voice! Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. let, let's let's not put Joe Cocker down. He is a legend. His version of "With a Little Help from My Friends" yeah. is a really good cover. Absolutely. Yeah. Curtis Steiger's "You're All That Matters to Me." Well, this and his other hit, "I Wonder Why," felt like they were on the radio mm. constantly. Yeah. I have to say, again, they felt kind of a little bit too indicative of a certain sort of um, adult music that I wasn't necessarily terribly intrigued by. What I didn't know was this was from his debut album. He said 14 albums in total, Curtis Tigers. Wow, that's amazing. Well, good on him. That's, uh, that's fantastic. That's, uh, that's a good Saturday afternoon then, isn't it? 14 yeah, really? albums. Um, I mean, what hair he had. It was wonderful hair. He, he never took himself too seriously either. He could have. No, um, no, no, and I think he's he's kind of very much still um, a kind of going concern. So, um, yes, um, and produced by Glenn Ballard, who had a very big track record of producing uh, rock in the eighties, seventies, and eighties. So, now and also again, number one in Finland, Wilson Phillips. You won't see me cry. I mean, this sounds completely like it's still in the eighties, doesn't it? I liked Hold On. I would have thought that I would have remembered this song and I completely couldn't remember no, this song. No, I, I had to go back and it was three and a half minutes of the week that passed me by. <laughs> Hold On is a whole stratosphere of its own. It's still just yeah. orbiting the world constantly, yeah. somewhere being heard. And do you want to hear an interesting Wilson Phillips fact? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> they appeared on the 2022 American version of The Masked Singer. That's incredible. It's a trio of lambs. That's there was blueberry lamb, there was rose lamb, and there was lilac lamb. Oh, how lovely. Oh, I find that very endearing. And That's uh, great. They, they were runners up as an encore. What did they sing? Oh, did they sing Hold On? Yeah, of course they did. <laughs> <laughs> I remember at the time they did release another single called Give It Up, which was more upbeat and more fun. Well, so, well done, so you. you. That's you just got Thank three you. and ten Wilson Phillips tracks. That's better than me. Right, okay, <laughs> so uh, Crowded House finishing off side three and four seasons in one day. Oh, well, Crowded House sort of showing us here how to do a ballad. I mean, their songs are very accomplished and very pared down. And, you know, coming after Wilson Phillips, I think it's, um yeah, it's... It's it's wonderful. It's quite lovely. Yeah. It's, it's a ray of sunshine after <laughs> Curtis Tigers and Wilson Phillips. Did you know the Woodface album? 
No, not at the time. No, I only heard the singles like "Weather with You" and you know that we're on yeah, it was, rotation constantly. It yeah. was just just such a great album, and and you kind of forget. I mean, it's Crowded House have been kind of compartmentalised into "Weather with You" and "Don't Dream It's Over," both great songs, yeah. obviously. But yeah. Neil Finn, Tim Finn, what Neil Finn can bring into three minutes? Oh, I so agree. Like things like um, "Distant Sun," yeah. And oh, just uh, and even like pineapple head. I locked out. I I I think that they're yeah. fantastic. Uh, they're best. Really, really yeah. great. I mean, I mean, what a songwriter! Anyone yeah. that can throw a line like "blood dries up like rain" into a song, oh, a love song, so beautiful. Uh, it's just yeah, just wonderful. Now, th- this this is where I feel this really flows like a CD here because side four actually doesn't have a different shape or feel at all. It just continues, although there is a bit more of a female presence, which is quite good. There's still a very grown-up feel to side four. Yes, completely. Yeah. So we saw so we up with um, Annie Lennox and her debut. You forget that Annie Lennox ever had a debut single, but she did, and here it is. Why? I remember hearing it at the time. Again, the idea of these potential relationships that you could get into when you get older and the idea of falling in love felt very attractive and even heartbreak could feel quite attractive because that sort of seems quite exciting but the mood that this captures that sort of disillusionment mm-hmm. you know the, the between two people felt almost kind of like quite, quite sort of frightening and the, the feeling of kind of low the low mood of it yeah. is is quite striking and um the Sophie Muller videos of mm. this time, Shakespeare's sister, Annie Lennox, walking on broken glass. She also did No Ordinary Love for Sade, which is an amazing oh, yeah. video. Because I do remember seeing the video for this at the time and just being blown away by it visually yeah. and thinking, God, what an, what an interesting way of presenting a ballad. And so I think that Annie Lennox was quite lucky to have her on board because I think she was very good at showcasing mm. Annie Lennox's solo career. Yeah. It's one of these songs that you forget about and it creeps back up on you again. It's yeah. such an amazing calling card for someone who'd already had over a decade's worth of a career in the pop industry. And you also forget what a huge album Diva was. This was Annie Lennox's first time back in the top 10 since 1986. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Wow, because they had had um, another single called Why, Mm. I think maybe in 89. That's right, yeah. And yeah, yeah, so they'd had a few singles, but that's interesting that this is the one that then got her back up to the... Yeah, I mean, she felt like she was being amazingly successful around this time. So next up, uh, George Michael and Elton John had been number one in December 1991. Don't let the sun go down on me. This only got to number 16 in 1974. What I had forgotten was this was first performed at Live Aid. Oh, I didn't know that. That's that's really interesting. I mean, it felt massive at the time. I've heard so many people do it at karaoke and you can't do it without someone shouting, ladies and gentlemen, Stealth and John. <laughs> that's like part of the song, <laughs> which is really funny. Bonnie shuffles. The video, though, is still one of those kind of spine-tingling moments because when George Michael introduces him, you do feel that swell in the crowd of like, oh my goodness, Elton John's actually here. Yes, George Michael had put on such an incredible performance in that Freddie Mercury concert doing Somebody to Love. Do you think there was a sort of part of that that kind of fed into the into people loving hearing his sort of live vocals on something? I perhaps? think that's a really interesting moment for George Michael's career. If you consider the context of the Freddie Mercury concert, George Michael was stepping into a, a huge arena of Queen fans and was taking on a track that was so well known and actually completely won over a Queen crowd, just literally because he's such an incredible vocalist. Yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely true. Do you have a favourite George Michael track? Ian? <laughs> you know, oh, some days it's waiting for the day. 
Uh, oh, that's a which is just good, an incredible song. Uh, Heal the pain, one more try. <laughs> I like too funky as well. Oh, too funky is so good uh, from this year as well. It's it? just yeah, no, I've just far too many. What, what about you? What's what's your George Michael track? Uh, I remember absolutely loving Fast Love when it came mm. out. It was retrospectively, I also really like Cowboys and Angels. Oh, that's yeah. a really beautiful George Michael track. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, and um, I actually quite like um. I want your sex. Actually, mm. I think it's quite an interesting sort of Prince influenced oh, yeah. Yeah. moment in his career. It's sort of un- an unfashionable one to cite, but I like the way it sort of takes you on a bit of a journey. It goes through different stages, and yeah. it's quite funny, but also quite good. Yeah. And yeah, the Faith album was a was a was a wonderfully brave album to me because there's a lot of that electro. It sits in the same year as Sign of the Times, and actually, there's there's tracks on there like Hard Day. Hard Day is so great, it's incredible yeah. that could almost be yeah. interchangeable with Housequake on Sign of the Times. Uh, exactly, exactly. So it's oh yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, let's just talk about George Michael for the next. <laughs> <laughs> Diana Ross. Uh, so this was uh, a number ten hit. Yeah, I didn't remember this. I have to say. No, it's very Magic FM. I uh, yeah. I I mean, obviously, Diana Ross got so many incredible moments in her career. So I think it's fine for her to. Hmm have a slightly mediocre moment yeah, and um yeah it was yeah. following up the big ballad when you tell me that you love me which had been the big end of 91 track so yeah um yeah it's, it's, it's a bit it's a bit yeah magic fm that's a good way of describing it let's just yeah, yeah. and let's leave the legend <laughs> that is diana ross just slightly over there and yeah. move to vanessa williams um save the best for last well, this is very evocative, this one, because, again, a bit like the Curtis Tigers ones, it just felt as if it was never off the yeah. radio. Yeah, one, you, st- you still hear it's, it a lot, don't you? It's, yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's actually, it's it's a lovely melody. It's a lovely song. Yes. Um, that kind of yeah. piano intro is very nice. It reminds me of Get Here by Elise Adams. Um, did you know the song was used in a Bisto advert? That's so interesting because I've always thought that it sounds kind of like a theme tune to something. Yeah. But instead yeah, it was used so, for Gravy Granules. Yeah. <laughs> The UK at its best. Slow motion shots of gravy being poured over a roast dinner. I love My Living by On Vogue. Oh, I think this is one of the best things of the 90s. I'm just going to put that out there. I had this album. I loved On Vogue. I really like singing, so something like how On Vogue had their vocal stylings on a record like this were just, I thought was great. I love the breakdown bit. I've written this. The down video on my is phenomenal. Notes. I've written Have vocal <laughs> breakdown. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yes, it's such a good moment, yeah. isn't it? The video is incredible, and something that I think sometimes is a bit underrated in pop music is the successful harnessing of anger in a song. <laughs> like there's something about this sort of slightly sort of schoolyard taunting mm. feeling of f you, yeah. but we're going to put it in the most sort of you know, funky, confident way possible. It's very satisfying, I think, because I think everyone, even when you're a kid, I think you can kind of, you can tap into a feeling of, you know, I'm going to get last word about something. Oh, yeah. And this really does that, you know. The whole Funky Divas album was just brilliant. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic album. I think it still holds up really well. Um, Something like Free Your Mind is also such a wonderful single I think they don't really get enough mentions, actually, when people sometimes talk about what 90s music was really fantastic. Talking about films, More Money was a big film for the summer of 92. And yeah. you've got Luther and Janet, which is missing. 
Yes, um, that was that was huge. And a, a song that I think um, would have been good to have on is um, TLC's Ain't Too Proud to Yeah, Bet. A really good record. Jack yeah. Swing sounds that actually on Vogue are representing it wholly on their own here. This side does finish off in a really nice kind of soulful way. We moved to Soul to Soul and Joy. I love Soul to Soul. I'd listen to their um, classic singles collection all the time. Mm. Really great single. I think that Keep On Moving and Back to Life led to the best singles of the 80s. There was, I think the follow-up was called Move Me No Mountain, which is a brilliant song. Oh, I really love that one too, yeah. Brilliant. So, And then we finish off with Incognito and the old Stevie Wonder song from Inner Visions, Don't You Worry About a Thing. The original is, is so wonderful mm. as well. I mean, I quite at the time, I quite liked a bit of acid jazz. Brand New Heavies had their version of Don't Let It Go To Your Head Out, which I really liked yeah. too. So, yeah. I, you know, I enjoyed this at the time. I mean, it's I, again, though, I hadn't heard the Stevie Wonder original I don't think when this came out and so it was also nice to discover that yeah, afterwards yeah. and that, um, that, that that's exactly yeah. what I was at at this time you were they were rediscovering things it's a nice finish to that side it's kind of bringing it almost back full circle back to the pop side why is that on vogue single in particular buried uh, yeah. in the in the middle of that final side why isn't it kicking off a side I mean what is that about Ian I mean I know it's true actually and that gets us to the sequencing of now doesn't it <laughs> because it is, so I've I've kind of had my slight moan about the dad rock mullet side of things which kind of takes off the shame but yeah you're right definitely I don't I don't and I don't really quite appreciate what they've got it needs to be leading one of these sides I think yeah is this a good snapshot of summer 92 for you I think so. I mean, it doesn't have Raving and Raving by Shut Up and Dance. I wish it did. <laughs> it doesn't have it doesn't have Motorcycle Emptiness by the Mannix. Nope. It doesn't have Jump by Chris Cross. No, it doesn't. Which felt massive yeah. at the time. Yeah. I think maybe it should have Don't You Want Me by Felix oh, as well. Yes, please. I'm I'm going to see all of yours and I'm going to suggest Join Our Club by Sinetian would have been quite nice. Oh, how fantastic, yes. Um, I've already done a shout out for the wedding present. Um, I'm going to go slightly more curveball, and I would have liked the sound of crying by Prefab Sprout. Oh, good call. But oh, that was a great that one. Was yeah. that, that, but you know, but if we can have Joe Cocker promoting his best of, surely we can have Prefab Sprout promoting theirs as well. Oh, I think so. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen something um, from Homebrew by Nana Cherry, which I really like that album. Oh, I love Homebrew, and so. I, I once had a big long conversation with Jude Rogers, previous guest, about our shared love, not just of Nana Cherry, but of Homebrew, and that's one that's completely slipped off the radar. It it's so good. Yeah. It's so good. I think it's the Nene Cherry album I, I play the most. It's, it's incredibly oh, just sort of textured and mm. there's a song called Twisted on it oh, and yeah. um, Red Paint. and Oh, yeah. it's so great. It's, um, a, great it's a track called yeah. Move With Me. Yes. Just yeah. incredible. Just so, oh, brilliant. any chance to celebrate Homebrew by Nene Cherry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to set you a challenge here. The other track I'd have thrown in there was Temple of Love by the Sisters of Mercy. Where would you put that? Oh. I'm going to be controversial here. And I would have bumped the orb and stuck it right at the end of it. Yeah, do that. I stuck think, right I think after, that's a good After call. Imagine going yeah. from Ragatip into Temple of Love. Oh, that would have been fantastic. That would have been pretty good. What we are actually demonstrating here, Catherine, is that 1992 had no genre whatsoever. That is brilliant. It's just completely, properly eclectic. Yeah. Would it be controversial to say that started to slip away as the 90s went on? I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's true. I think people started trying to sound like each other more and more, didn't they? It was, well, there was a wonderful open playing field. I don't know. Maybe that's me looking at it too idealistically. And it's also one of those moments, isn't it, where you come to the end of the 80s and then the new decade is still trying to figure itself out. 
And there's something about that moment where people are trying different things, throwing different things at a canvas, yeah. seeing what sticks, yeah. that, that throws up quite a lot of, um, yeah, quite interesting stuff. Yeah. So what would you take yeah. from this album then, if you were going to take a handful of tracks? I would take On Vogue. Mm. I would take I Don't Care by Shakespeare's Sister. I would take On a Ragatip by SL2. And something good by Utah Saints. I can't pick all of them, can I? I mean, I have to. Oh God, I take disappointed by electronic. What would you take? Um, probably same. <laughs> um, I think I would. Do you know what? If I if I was going to whittle it down to just two, which is really hard, I'm going to take a double A side of electronic and Mark Almond. <gasps> Mark Almond. Forget all of mine. I'm taking Mark Almond. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine, thank you so much for joining us here on the Back to Now podcast and taking us back to an eclectic summer with Now 22. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been four seasons in one day. Oh, that, that's and, and I, I have not been disappointed by our efforts. See what we do here, listeners. We really do think this through. Man, we should work on daytime telly with that kind of stuff, eh? Phil and Holly have got nothing on us. Catherine, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much, Ian. It's been fantastic. <laughs> 